You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you. Glad you're with us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Shay Sumlin, uh, one of the pastors here, and I'd love for you to turn with me to our text this morning, which is in Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read this text before us here. Before we get started, Genesis 14, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under the seat somewhere in front of you. That is our gift to you, by the way. But Genesis 14, our scripture reading here this morning, the entire chapter. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariat, king of Elisar, Keleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shem Eber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedileomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketileomer and the kings of those who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim and Asheroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, and the Emim and Shava, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and they came to Ein Mispat, that is Kadesh. And they defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Kedileomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar. And Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went away. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, who's the brother of Eshkol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, And he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions. And he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom then said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to imagine for a moment just visiting a foreign country. You accidentally stumble into somebody else's family reunion. You hear them recounting stories that you can't relate to, places that you have never been, in a language that you don't understand, and dang sure names that you can't pronounce. That is essentially what you just experienced as I read this text over you. It's the reason why we didn't have a member read the text this morning. In fact, if you want just a great icebreaker at your next dinner party, just bust out Genesis 14 and let some, some random person just read it right there and stumble across the whole thing. These, uh, these names that neither you nor I can pronounce, they're here for a reason. This passage is here for a reason. All scripture is God-breathed and inspired for us, our benefit. And uh, maybe these names, maybe they're not consequential in human history, but the story that's here is consequential in our understanding of God's purposes in human history and particularly our own redemption. And so here's what I wanna do this morning. I want to uh, just quickly explain this text that we just read help you understand what exactly is going on, why this is in Genesis. But more importantly, as we walk through this, I just want to show us four pictures that I think we're meant to see in this text in the life and the faith of Abraham that are meant to exhort us and encourage us in our faith in Jesus Christ. And so let me just say this. What this text is describing is actually the first battle that is ever recorded in the Bible. The first war between humans um, and armies is right here uh, in Genesis 14. And in keeping with typical Hebrew literary style, it's the first three verses that give us the overview of the text, and then the rest gets explained. And so here's how I want. I'm a visual person, so I have no idea what I'm reading unless I can see it. And so I want to put a map up in front of you. Leave this up here for just a minute. Um, and walk through the first several verses here just to show you what's going on, okay? Um, you have essentially what's described in the first three verses, four kings that are to the north and to the east. You see those shaded there. And they're gonna go to battle against five kings, smaller kings, who all live down near the Dead Sea that are down to the south and to the west. And back in this day, these are not major dominant kingdoms per se. These are more like city-states, little tribal communities that have a leader as a king. And oftentimes in the ancient Near East, what they would do is these little minor city-states would form alliances in order to protect their territories and their trade routes. And that's why all of these kings that you see, they're on major trade routes where they're located. And usually when you formed an alliance of several different kings, there would always be one king who's kind of like the big dog of all the other kings that they alliance with, they have a coalition with. 
In this text, the four kings that you see to the north and to the east, they are um, really kind of, as we'll soon learn, under one big dog who's the king of Elam, which is Ketelamer. Now, none of us would even know how to pronounce that. We would just say Cheddar Laomer. So from this point forward, I'm not going to pronounce Ketelamer. We're just going to use Cheddar. In fact, this is big Cheddar. This is the big cheese right here from the rest on. It's quickly turning into a VeggieTales uh, story right here. But you're going to thank me later. You're going to have this imprint. You'll never not talk about the big cheese again. But what we learn here is that these four kings and their armies under the direction of Big Cheddar right here, they are headed down to the Dead Sea to make war against these five little kings. Now, in verse four, keep noticing the map here. Verse four, we'll move now from the overview to literally telling us both why and how this battle happened. Verse four tells us that for 12 years, those five kings in the south were most likely under the, they were servants of Big Cheddar there. They, they kind of were under his authority in many ways, mainly because they probably guarded the trade routes. Big Cheddar here is like the, the mob boss over all these uh, other territories. In fact, his name, Ketelamar, means, means son of the unsparing. It's a merciless, merciless king. And so in verse five, kind of like America did with England, in the 13th year of this kind of being under, under the big chatter here, the, the five smaller kings said enough is enough and we're not serving you anymore. No taxation without representation kind of thing going on right here. We're, we're done with this. And so in verse five through seven, old Chetta is gonna round up his alliances who sat on those trade routes and they're gonna head down. And he's gonna say, let's go down and teach them a lesson. And so they start marching southward. And as you can see the direction as they're heading that way, what you have here is an account of them pillaging. Before they even get to those five kings, they pillage no less than six other territories and other city-states, as far down as to the Red Sea before they end up turning back and heading towards those five kings. And by the way, those are no small defeats that you see there in verses five through seven. Um, we're meant to see there, in fact, uh, the Rephaim and the Emim those are actually known for being very large people, very tall people, um, very um, strong fighters. In fact, one of their descendants of the Rephaim is going to be a Philistine named Goliath, who's going to come from these people. And so the picture here that we're meant to see is that these four kings are the big bad bullies of the north and the east and with big Chet at the helm, and they're not to be messed with. So that is your background right there. That little helpful, you got four kings heading south, go take on five kings. So story begins to culminate here in verse eight and nine. What you see in verse eight and nine, as we read, you have these five kings of the south and to the west there, and they decide, they're watching uh, these oppressors kind of take out these other places. They decide it's time to go out to battle. And so they form their alliance and they head out. They've got some home field advantage, you would think, because they're right there on the Dead Sea where this battle is going to take place, but five kings against four. And in verse 10, the five kings from the north and the south, or from the, uh, the five kings from down south, actually get whooped by the four kings. Big Cheddar doesn't even spare anything. 
and uh, they begin to defeat them quickly. Once defeat is inevitable, those five kings begin retreating with their armies. Some of them jump into some petroleum pits that are located down there near the Dead Sea, these asphalt pits. They're either hiding in there or they jump in them and they die like a tar pit. The rest are going to head out to the mountains of Canaan to try to escape. That's what's going on. Verse 11 is what's left. Total plunder. The son of the unsparing takes every possession and every person under those five kings and he takes them captive. Namely, those who are in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, why is this a big deal? Why is this event even worth mentioning in the book of Genesis? Well, the answer is in verse 12. Do you remember from last week who it was who was living down near Sodom? It was Lot, Abram's nephew, who chose by the lust of his eyes to head in the direction where the wicked kingdoms were so he could go live down there, be near to them, eventually be immersed in them, eventually become like them so that he could gain prosperity like they had it. And so Lot, last week we left off as living near there. By the time we get to chapter 14, verse 12, we find that Lot is not just living near there. He's now living in Sodom. So he is fully immersed in Sodom. Otherwise, if it's not for Lot being in verse 12, you would have never heard of this story. It would have never been in Genesis chapter 14, but it is here. And so now in verse 13, the camera pans over. We leave from the battlefield near the Dead Sea, and the camera pans over to Canaan, which is modern-day Israel right now, pans over there, and we pick up with a more familiar person in this story, Abram. And we see in verse 13, we're told something here that Abram, this Hebrew, was living by the Oaks of Mamre. We saw that last week. This is where Abram pitched his tent, probably in a Canaanite worship dwelling that's owned by this Amorite named Amre. And we're also introduced to Amre's two brothers, Eshkol and Aner. And we're told that they're allies of Abram. So a few things jump out here in verse 13 that the original readers, the Israelites who had just come out of the Red Sea, Egypt, would have picked up on this. Number one, this is the first place in your Bible where the word Hebrew is used as a description of Abram. Um, now, why is that important? One, Hebrew, the term Hebrew was a term never used by Israelites themselves. They didn't refer to themselves as Hebrews they were referred by non-Israelites. It was how non-Israelites would describe a Jewish person, Abram in this instance. Now, one, we think that that term may have originated from one of the earlier descendants in Abraham's line. In fact, underneath the line of Shem was a guy by the name of Eber, and in Hebrew, his name is spelt like Hebrew. And we think that's maybe where it comes from, but we know this, that the name Hebrew means outsider, means one who's from across the way or across the river. And that would have certainly been how the Canaanites would have identified Abram. He is not a local. He's an outsider. He came from across the Euphrates back in Ur. He is a Hebrew. He's an outsider. And, but I think this outsider had apparently made his own alliances 
while he was there. Not just those kings had alliances. Abram began to make some under God's providence with these Amorites and Canaanites, this guy by the name of Mamre and his two brothers. And from what we can tell is Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, all three of them had land or cities or altars that were named after them. So apparently some prominent men whom God and his providence here allows Abram to form at least an alliance with in territory to share some land. The point of this alliance is verse 14, and thus the climax of this story. In verse 14, we see that Abram, as soon as he finds out that his nephew is taken captive, he is going to head out on a rescue mission, an unlikely rescue mission, with very minimal resources. We're told he's got these two alliances. We don't know how many are with them but we're specifically told he's got 318 men who've been special trained ops, little Navy SEAL to go in. And they're gonna go to try and take on these, five, these four kings who just, got def- just defeated no less than 11 kingdoms, 11 city-states. And now Abram's gonna go take them on. Now, this is interesting. The first picture I wanna draw your attention to right here that I think we're meant to see in the life and the ministry of Abraham that I think we're to glean from too, is this idea, this picture. Mercy received is mercy given. Grace received is grace given. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Would you have gone and rescued Lot? You've got an extended family member, yes, but one who has just chosen to go his own way. One who said, forget you, I'm going this way. I'm going to align myself with wicked people. I'm going to rebel against God's promises here and I'm gonna seek to obtain those blessings on my own. And I'm gonna move closer and closer to sin and wickedness. And now I've been taken captive by it. I've been enslaved by it and I've been sent off. Now, imagine in that moment, what could Abram have said in this moment to his extended family member who has made a train wreck of his life? Could have said easily, ooh, Lot got captured? Stinks to be you, buddy. Hate that for you. Wish you the best. Got to sleep in your own bed, man. You made that thing. You know what? It's like karma, man. What comes around goes around. You're just getting what's due you. Could have easily said those things. And I think for us, and some reflection I've been doing in my own life this week in this text, is sometimes it's really hard to have compassion on others who are walking through difficult circumstances. That's true for any one of us. It can be hard to sympathize, let alone empathize, with somebody who's walking through something that's difficult that we haven't gone through. But I think it's even more difficult sometimes if we're really honest with ourselves to have compassion on those who actually put themselves in that situation, who through their own poor decisions have made a mess of their lives and now have themselves in a bind where somebody's got to get them out. It can be very hard to actually have compassion on somebody to go, did you did that yourself? After warning, after warning, what we promised would happen has happened and now you need help getting bailed out. That's not on me, that's on you. But Abraham doesn't do that here. His immediate response is to extend mercy to Lot 
in a time of need. And the question we have to ask is why? Is it just because it's his nephew? No, I think it's more than that. I think the reason Abram is able to extend mercy in this situation towards Lot is because of the mercy that he received back in chapter 13. Remember, Abram, too, made a wreck out of his life. Back in chapter 12, when famine hit, Abram went down to Egypt and he lied, he manipulated, he didn't trust God, and he found himself in a place where not only his life, but his own wife's life, and even Lot's life, were put on the line because of him. And that happened back in chapter 12, but what happened in chapter 13 is that God took him back. God extended to Abram what he did not deserve, which was mercy. He deserved judgment under Pharaoh, and God didn't allow it to happen. He withheld what he deserved, which was mercy. And on top of that, in chapter 13, he gives him what he didn't deserve, which is the definition of grace, when he gives him blessing, unmerited favor towards Abram, even after all the mistakes that Abram had made. And so now as a recipient of this mercy and grace, God calls Abram to take the blessing that he received and go be a blessing to others. And so he does. And I think that is the same story for any one of us who knows what it's like to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. Every one of us in this room who have sinned, who have rebelled against God, who have fallen short of God's glory, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, we know what it's like to be forgiven. We know what it's like to not have our trespasses counted against us. We know what it's like to be given mercy, to not receive what we deserved, and to be given grace, to be given, to be given what we didn't deserve. Like we've tasted of that. We know that, that we were delivered by that. How could we not go give it away? And I think as a result, you and I too, we have been called to extend the same mercy and the same grace that we've received to others. Jesus said in Luke 6, you be merciful as your heavenly father has been merciful to you. Paul said in Ephesians 4, we are to forgive others as we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Paul also said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, we who have received the reconciliation to God that we didn't deserve, we're now called to go be ministers of reconciliation so others who don't deserve it can be reconciled to God as well through Jesus Christ. So let me just ask a question under this first picture that we see here. Do you have any lots in your life right now? Who in your life right now are you having a hard time forgiving? Who in your life right now has made a wreck of their own life because of their own decisions, even against your own counsel. And you find it hard now to move towards them in kindness and mercy and love. If you have a lot in your life, someone whom you simply feel you cannot forgive, let me just be real clear this morning. Your problem is not that you can't forgive their sin. Your problem is that you have forgotten what your forgiveness was like. And so when you find yourself in a chapter 14 situation, you need to go back to chapter 12 in your life. You need to remember what it was like when you sinned 
and fell short of the glory of God. And then you need to go to chapter 13 and be reminded of what his forgiveness was like when it came your way, unmerited. And then out of that reservoir, you'll have what it takes to go extend that mercy in in your own chapter 14 to those who need it. Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much, but he who has been forgiven little will love little. Well, the story continues. Chapter 14 here, verse 15 and 16. What we see happen next is that Abram goes and he takes his forces, his little 318 special ops group with him. And uh, he pursues old Big Cheddar and the coalition of kings there. And he tracks them down all the way as far north as what is the very top of Israel right now on the border of Syria, uh, which is the city of Dan one of the tribal allotments that would be coming in the years ahead. But he goes all the way up to Dan. Uh, And they do a little surprise attack at night while all Cheddar's troops are caught off guard. They're probably drunk. They're probably enjoying the, the spoils of war and the plunder that they had. And it's in the middle of the night. They've already defeated 11 kings now. There's not much left in the area. And here comes Abram and this little special ops team against all odds. They divide their forces at night and they utterly ambush Big Cheddar and these other kings. And not only do they whoop these four kings, notice in verses 15 and 16, they push them all the way up into Syria and totally obliterate them into nothingness. And in doing so, they recapture all the possessions that have been taken and all the people that have been taken, including lot. And so what we have here is a miracle story of rescue. One guy, three three alliances, and 318 men, and they go and defeat four major kings who just already defeated 11 other kings, 11-0, and they whoop them. And I think the second picture we're meant to see here, and we're going to hear this every single week, The second picture that you're meant to see here is that the promises of God cannot be thwarted. They can't. They can't. We've seen three challenges thus far since Genesis 12 to the promise that God made to Abraham. Three challenges. We saw famine, and that didn't work. We saw the threat of family strife and wealth, and that didn't work. And now we've seen a war, a physical enemy taking hostage the family of Abram. And every threat thus far has been met with God's triumph and God's blessing. Even when his own people get in the way of it, the promise of God still prevails. Now, why is that? Why are you gonna see this every week? We said again, when you read Genesis, we're not looking for moral examples here. Do this and then this will work out for you. No, what you're seeing is the story of the promise of God that it's invincible. This isn't happening because this is some sort of prosperity gospel. This isn't happening because, so we can just see that Abram and Lot, God's people can just sin all they want and there's no consequences and they're always gonna come out with blessing. That's not the main theme of the story. That's not the theme of the story. That's not true. No, we're seeing what we're seeing so that we can understand that through Abram, God's promise will continue no matter what. The Messiah will come. The nations will be blessed. The the gospel of God is unstoppable. 
The promise of God cannot be thwarted. And this is the same promise that is given towards you and I who are in Jesus Christ that has been secured for us. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's not a universal statement. You don't put that on a card and give it to everybody that you know. That promise is about the promise of God through his people that it cannot be stopped. Romans 5 says that we as God's children are rejoice in our circumstances, even in suffering. Why? Because it's through suffering that we learn endurance. It's through endurance that we learn character and it's through character that we have hope and hope cannot be put to shame. This does not mean that for the Christian that all circumstances are gonna be great when you follow Jesus. But it does mean that we can trust in all circumstances that God is going to work out something great through them, ultimately. One that will culminate in not only our transformation in Jesus Christ, but our ultimate redemption that is in him. And so the promise for Abram that we can see in his story and we can hold on for ourselves is that the promises of God cannot be thwarted. When it comes to your justification, that is your salvation in Jesus Christ, when it comes to your sanctification, that is your ultimate growth and transformation day by day in this life into the image of Jesus Christ, and when it comes to your ultimate glorification, the day that you too will be seated at the right hand of the Father, secured for all eternity in the new kingdom. You can trust that not even the gates of hell will prevail against God's plan for that for you. And you can hold fast to it. So let me ask maybe another question under this picture here. What promise of God are you struggling to believe this week? Whatever challenge that you find yourself in, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can believe by faith that in God's providence, he intends to bless you through it or even on the other side of it. His promises towards you and his ultimate plan for your redemption that will come culminating when Jesus returns, they cannot be stopped. They cannot be thwarted. So hold tight by faith. Keep walking it out even when these circumstances seem insurmountable because your God is not done. He will see you through. Well, the story concludes in verses 17 through 24. And this is an interesting conclusion to this text. What you see in verses 17 through 24 is after this miraculous defeat, Abram is approached by two kings, two kings who could not be any more different in this story. One king is gonna be known as the king of righteousness and the king of peace guy by the name Melchizedek. We're going to look at him independently next week because this is a mysterious cat that we go, what is he doing in this text? And you're not going to hear about him again until we get to Psalm 110 and Hebrews chapter five and following. And then all of a sudden we're going to find out this guy's a big deal. So we'll deal with him next week. But the second king that appears in this final passage here is not the king of righteousness and peace. It's the king of sin and destruction by the name of uh, the city of Sodom. Remember, Sodom was described last week in chapter 13 as a wicked place, a place of great sin. And so the king of this place, the king of wickedness, the king of sin and destruction appears 
and he tries to strike a deal with Abram. He says, listen, thank you for defeating the kings that we were unable to defeat. So as a token of our appreciation, how about you keep all the wealth from the plunder? Just give us our people back. Let's just strike a deal right here. But I want you to notice Abram's response in verses 22 through 24. When Abram says, I'm not gonna take any of it. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take even a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, O king of Sodom, lest you should say that I'm the one who made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Now, understand this in this passage right here. Um, it's an interesting encounter, encounter here. This king tries to strike a deal here and Abram would take nothing from it. We are meant to see this is the exact opposite of what Abram did in chapter 12 when he was facing the king Pharaoh in Egypt. And after lying and manipulating and bringing undue plagues upon Pharaoh because of Abram's sin to make a deal to end the plagues, Pharaoh goes, hey, take everything. Take all this wealth and livestock and people. And Abram goes, I'm in and takes it all and goes back to Canaan with all those possessions. But here in chapter 12, it's the exact opposite. He wants nothing to do with it. He is totally entitled to take everything as the victor in this war. And he goes, I'm not taking a single thread from you, king of Sodom. And so the question is, why? And here's where our third picture comes in that I think we're meant to see in this text. We are to seek God's glory and God's blessing over the world's glory and the world's blessing. Proverbs 23 says, when you sit down to eat with a king, you need to observe carefully what is right before you. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth, but be discerning so that you may know when to resist. In other words, you need to be careful because this particular king may just have a hidden agenda in his trying to strike a deal with you. This is a king of a wicked city. And Abram knows better now than to take a deal from this king. We're not gonna lock arms with sin's agenda. Our mission is God's mission for God's glory. But more importantly, note how Abram mentions that he actually had already made this vow to God before he went into that battle that if you will grant me victory, God, if you will allow me to recapture Lot, then I promise any glory that comes from it will be glory that's attributed to you, not me. And Abram knows that from this point forward, if he were to take this wealth and somebody were to ask him, man, how did you get so blessed? Sodom will always be able to say that they had a part in it. And Abram's not gonna touch it. Abram, in his renewed faith, no longer wants to live that way as he once did. He wants to live in such a way that if any victory comes, any blessing comes in his life, it can only be attributed to God, to Yahweh, not to anyone else. 
Therefore, he doesn't even want a thread from this dude's Patagonia sweater. He doesn't even want a, a, a shoelace from his Tevas, man. It is solo de gloria. It is God's glory alone. And I think we're meant to see that. And the same is true with us. As you and I who have been blood-bought by Jesus Christ, we now serve a new master in this life. And it's his purposes and his glory that we are to do the bidding. We are to live for his glory, his mission, his purposes, not ours. And in doing so, you and I, as we live out this life for God's glory, we're going to face constant temptation to want to cut corners, to take shortcuts, or to cheat in order to obtain blessing. You and I are going to face temptation to take bribes or accept offerings from unethical means as a way to advance and obtain blessing in this life. All of which rob God of his glory in whom he promises to take care of those who wait for him. Now that doesn't mean we're to be passive. It doesn't mean that we're non-shrewd in business dealings and things like that. It doesn't mean that we're, there's some circumstances that aren't going to require some, some conscience and some decisions that may be right in one person in one situation and wrong for another in the same one. But there are some situations, and this one being one of them with Abram, where the decision is clear, we are not to live off of unjust means, where we must decline certain offerings from the world, whether financial or relational, lest we rob God of his glory. And so one question that I would ask, that I've been asking myself is, what is one area of your life presently where there is something that you are longing for and you are tempted right now to cut a corner to get it, to not wait on God, to take it into your own hands and to receive all the credit for it. What would it look like for you in that same situation to pursue said thing in such a way that when it actually is obtained, there is no other person who could receive the glory from it other than God? Now, I can't answer that question for you any more than you can answer it for me. You're going to have to pray on it. You're going to have to seek counsel. You're going to have to look in the word for God's counsel. And you're going to have to make a decision of which is the path that God will get the most glory for this rather than me. And I think that picture is one that we are meant to see. God's glory and God's blessing above the world's glory and the world's blessing. The final picture that I want to leave us with here that I think is the main picture, the fourth and final one, is about the great rescue that we see take place in this text. This is a powerful text. When you step back and view it from the macro 30,000 foot level, what you have here is an amazing rescue that is on display in Genesis 14. I want you to think about it this way. What do we see in Genesis 14? We have a child of God who is chased after their own lusts of their flesh, who has been driven not by the priorities of God, but driven by the priorities of the flesh, who has now been separated from God's promise due to their own sin, captured, enslaved, and now shipped off. But then we have a man of promise who has been sent into this land to rescue that child through impossible yet miraculous means, who therefore will overthrow that enemy, 
who will deliver that son, that child, and who will join in in the plunder of the spoils for the glory of God, whereby in this rescue will result in righteousness and peace and the pronouncement of blessing and where that family will then as the result get to go and be a blessing to others. Does that story sound remotely familiar? That is our story if you are in Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us that we like Lot have gone astray. We like Lot have all fallen short of God's glory. We like Lot when presented with the opportunity to wait and trust in the promise of God have chosen to go our own way to follow after where our eyes go, the lusts of our own flesh. The Bible calls it sin. It is rebellion against God and it comes with incredible collateral damage. Separation from eternity from God himself, the curse that leads to the brokenness that we see in the world today. We, like Lot, have gone astray and we too were captured and enslaved by an enemy because of our sin to the point that we were hopeless, that on our own, there is no hope of rescue. But God in his glory has a chosen one who came from another land, who could have sat by and said, whoa, stinks for you. Hate the situation that you're in. You're gonna have to sleep in your own bed. Could have done that, but didn't. In his love and his mercy, sent his chosen one, Jesus Christ, to come live a life of righteousness that you and I have failed to live, to die on a cross, to absorb the, the penalty of the punishment that we deserved, which was death. And he took it for us. And he came in and he overthrew through his conquering resurrection, rose from the dead, overthrew our enemy by miraculous means. And in doing so, took us back as the spoils of war reconciled us back to himself and gave us new life, pronounced new blessing over us as we're gonna see next week with Melchizedek and has sent us out now to go be a blessing to the world. That is the picture we're meant to see. This is our rescue and God is so faithful. What you see in the life of Abraham is just a foreshadow of what's coming for us that we have received. If you have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, oh, may the invitation be extended to you today if you've never heard it before, that his grace and his mercy is available for you. No matter how far you have run, no matter how much you have rebelled, you are never too far from the love of God. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to show you, to rescue you. Give your life to him. Take all the faith that you have put in yourself that has been resulting for your own glory and your own merit, which the scripture says cannot accomplish your own salvation. Take that trust and put it rightly on Jesus Christ and receive his grace for you today and follow him the rest of your days and watch him take what was old and dead and make it new and living in you. That is the good news. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this text. Thank you for the picture of not just Lot's rescue, it's a picture of our rescue. Well, God, may you rekindle our affections this day. Remind us that no matter how far we've gone, your love is greater. And for anyone in this room who finds themselves enslaved in their own sin, 
trapped in the mire of that sin. Oh God, would you bring us back to our own chapter 13 and remember the cross. Remember Jesus who came for us that we might put our trust fully in you, receive the newness of life that you promise. And God, lead us in a way that brings the most glory to you that we know is intended for the most good for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.